David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Ed Zimmerman, the head of the tech group at Wallenstein Sandler. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So today we're going to talk about your twin passions for venture capital and social justice, which have really animated so much of what you've done in your adult life. Could you take us back to how you became interested in both of those, your education and how you became a lawyer? Sure. Thanks for asking. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I grew up in a home where I was raised by four women, three of whom were disabled and my dad and two of the women were LGBTQ. Uh, And this was at a time in the 70s and 80s when those things were particularly stigmatizing. So I think that part of the way that I perceive the world was informed by watching how people looked at, in particular, my older sister who used a wheelchair and seeing the biases that people not only had, but felt very comfortable not hiding from us as we made our way through life. I don't believe that my political or social views have changed all that much since I was about 18. And those views have informed a lot of the decisions that I've made in my life, including professional decisions. So unsurprisingly, I chose a summer associate slot based on being permitted to do ACLU work And I never expected to be a deal lawyer. I took things like systemic reform and prison litigation in law school, which is really not the kind of class that you take if you're looking to tilt toward a career helping people do venture deals and growth equity deals. And so how did you migrate into VC? And you were in law school in the early 90s, correct? 89 to 92 at Penn Law in Philly. Yeah. And so this was at a time where VC was really almost exclusively a West Coast practice. And it was still at that point, not a large practice. There were a handful of firms that dominated that specialty, and it didn't really exist all that much on the East Coast. And when you say dominated that specialty, that would sort of be the way a puppy might dominate a kiddie pool, right? I mean, it was such a tiny specialty. I would say that there were some law firms in the Boston area. There were some law firms in California. There were certainly no law firms in New York that at that time were doing venture and startups. We weren't really doing venture, we being Lonestein Taylor, weren't really doing venture and startups at the time. And I was a summer associate and I was given an array of assignments as summer associates are. And the corporate assignments, my instruction was sit down and think, read this paragraph, tell us what you think they're trying to do and what you think they want us to not understand that they're trying to do. I found that a lot more fascinating than the very junior level tasks I was doing on litigation. I find litigation interesting now as well. And separately, I worked through law school at a place called the Disabilities Law Project, which was a fantastic nonprofit that was doing advocacy work for people with developmental disabilities. And 
I had some experiences there that indicated to me that it was going to be less impactful to spend my life that way and a little more anxiety inducing in terms of uh, some of the ways that I would not be having an impact because I would be trying to ensure that things fit within the scope of the grants that enabled us to operate, for instance. So those things really informed what I wanted to do when I got out of school. So you went to Longstein Sandler after you graduated from law school and you focused on corporate. Tell us about what the emerging companies practice was like in New York in the 90s and what you foresaw for it. (laughs) It was remarkably limited in the first part, although my head was down. By the time we got to the mid-90s and the internet really was percolating and starting to be pervasive in business discussions, we did have some startups. I did not know venture capitalists, and it became really apparent that we had to connect with venture capitalists and angel investors because they were so crucial to the survival of these companies. And I became really fascinated with how dynamic, how fast moving these businesses could be. And a lot of these businesses wanted to have some sort of impact and make change. And I'm not really talking about impact in terms of social justice, just that they were disruptive and that they were run by people who were younger and who wanted to build something audacious. And that was really attractive. And so how did you go about making and building those relationships? And then tell us about 2000 and the effect of the crash of the tech bubble on this still very nascent New York tech startup scene. The assets at any law firm are the human beings. And I had colleagues who were really supportive and who also encouraged the spreading of wings generally. I had an opportunity to teach at Rutgers Law School starting in 1994 because David Harris, who was a partner at Lowenstein and ultimately shared the litigation uh, department at Lowenstein and was a member of the ACLU, the National Board of the ACLU, took a shine to me and asked me to teach at Rutgers Law School with him. That was a game-changing development. And I so admire David. Uh, I'm still in contact with him. He's retired. He retired years ago. But he was fantastic. And his mentorship was great. Peter Ehrenberg, who was the chair of the corporate department, was also incredibly supportive and felt very comfortable encouraging me as a second or third year associate to bring in pro bono clients that I felt passionate about, encouraged me to get involved in organizations, encouraged me to spend hundreds of hours editing a chapter in a book for the ABA as a mid-level associate while I was also teaching and doing a bunch of pro bono stuff. Without people who really want you to spread your wings and who give you those opportunities, it's really hard to do something new. And then, of course, you kind of need a true thought partner. And Anthony Pergola, who was a couple of years behind me as a summer associate, And I took Anthony out to lunch his first day as a summer associate in June of 94. He and I came up with the business plan for what was then the internet group at Lowenstein Sandler at my kitchen table in 1998. And it was a relatively modest business plan, but 
He's still my partner. We have co-founded lots of things. We've angel invested together in 150 or so companies. Uh, we've, we've invested together in many, many funds. And we've seen each other's families grow up. It's really important to have a partner. And of course, there are other partners who join the group later. But at inception, it's really important to have someone that you can have a trusted relationship with where you're both willing to watch each other's backs and take risks. And so tell us about some of those risks, again, around 2000. And then thereafter, as the texting in New York really did start to develop significantly. Well, it developed, it started to develop significantly in, in the late 90s. And, you know, in the New York, New Jersey area, you did have a whole bunch of tech entrepreneurs and there were people starting tech companies. And a lot of the metrics upon which success was based were completely wrong. And we know this now because lots of people lost money, lots of companies went out of business. And then we had the double whammy of the markets have cratered, venture capital has dried up, angel investment has dried up. And oh, by the way, here comes September 11th, right? And so New York was hit particularly hard. I think a lot of people exited the market after the first of those blows, right? After the dot-com meltdown, and then again, after the second of those blows, 9-11. And that made sense. Anthony and I believed, and the firm was supportive, that the opportunity presented by the internet was relatively infinite. And we should continue to lean into it because tourists would leave and diehards would stay. And that would actually create huge value in the future. It might be a long-term bet. and We weren't sure how long, but we knew that it had real value. And, and was there was there a company or companies that you worked with or VCs that you worked with who were extraordinarily successful that proved this concept when you were a young partner? So I kept thinking that there would be like this one client and that this one client would be transformational and that it would be kind of name above title, right? So I would be known inside the firm as the partner who represented client X and client X was just massive. And, you know, that was great. And that didn't really happen. Instead, we built an enormously diversified practice. And that was really valuable because the best way to get a sense of the market is to participate in it from multiple different vantage points and to contrast and compare. So it wasn't that there was one client that had this outsized success and consumed 60% or 90% of my time. There were a lot of really small clients at the beginning and things snowballed and things grew. And you know we made a bunch of other bets that paid off, but no, there wasn't a transformational client. Did you stay focused on the New York, New Jersey area, or did you find that you had to go to Boston and Silicon Valley and later on other places outside the United States to continue to build your practice? There's have to, and there's want to, and then there's something in between. And I would describe what we did as something in between. We felt that it was crucial to develop relationships outside of our geography so that we would not be displaced inside our geography. And we needed to have at least the kind of relationship where someone would say, 
I would return that guy's phone call. Or I've heard of that person and he's not a low integrity lawyer. He kind of knows what he's doing. Let's at least get a toehold there. And that required traveling up to Waltham. It required traveling out to Silicon Valley. There was no real action in San Francisco at the time. It was in Silicon Valley at the time. And then we also saw opportunity in Europe and started doing things in different places in Europe in order to build the framework and the relationship set because we felt like we could replicate what we had done in Boston and in California. When did you start going to each of those places and how much time did you feel that you had to spend in these places just meeting with people to get them to feel comfortable with you? It's always better when you've done a deal with someone than when you've sat across the table and tried to manifest that your competence would eke out and be perceptible, right? <laughs> you know, by sheer force of will. So we ended up getting involved in the early on in the NBCA or National Venture Capital Association Model Legal Documents Project, raising our hand for committees. Anthony Pergola chaired a committee, I chaired a committee. We ultimately recruited the two different women who had run the entire project, co-led the entire project. One was Sarah Reed, who had started the project. So we ended up finding ways to spend a bunch of time out there and, and, and going out to California on a monthly basis, making sure that we were also keeping in touch with people. And we started doing events. That's how we started doing our Venture Crush event. The first Venture Crush event that we did was in March of 2000, and I'll, I'll never forget it because we were really pleased that we had about 15 VCs sitting around a conference room table, and people were looking at their Palm Pilots, and I think Blackberries were around in March of 2000, definitely Palm yes. Pilots. And people just started looking at messages and looking at things and saying, uh-oh. And it was the day that NASDAQ kind of melted. Ed, you, you mentioned earlier that you yourself do angel investing, you invest with funds. How come you've opted to continue practicing law instead of going to the VC side entirely? David, do you buy lottery tickets or scratch off tickets or play lotto or whatever it is? I Powerball. do not. Okay. And growing up, my parents viewed that as like almost as sinful as smoking. <laughs> so my dad, who smoked, when he passed away of lung cancer, which is what happens when you smoke a lot, although he had stopped. When he passed away, I cleaned out his home and uh, I opened a file cabinet drawer and it was, I don't know, five inches deep with losing lottery tickets. And I just looked at them and wept. And I knew that you know, he had never had a particularly happy, joyous life. And I knew that he wanted to win the lottery and in many respects, didn't, never did. It has been something that I've been thinking about for a while lately, that my angel investing is analogous to playing the lottery the way that he did. I don't think my odds of winning the lottery are much different than his were, even though I don't buy tickets, right? Because I, I don't like the odds. <laughs> I like to think that applying some skill makes it not really playing the lottery. I like to think that that skill is something that I've acquired over time 
that it's enhanced by my legal practice, my set of relationships, my observations in deals, the cadence of deals, and that it gets better over time and that it stands in symbiosis with my legal practice. And so what I try to do with my law practice is I try to practice at the top of my license. I try to do the things that fewer people can do. And I try to solve hard problems. And we have the good fortune of having a pretty substantial group. Wall Street Journal called our team one of the five most active in venture in America. And I know we're the only one of those where the team is really headquartered in New York. And so if a deal goes sideways out of the more than 500 venture deals we might do in a year, it's going to land on my desk in all likelihood. And I'll help solve a really hard problem and I'll learn from it. But having that vantage point, I, I think I'm more effective for my clients because I've had the experience of being involved in so many of my own investments. And that gives me perspective. And I think I'm a better investor because I'm constantly in the flow of deals. What are a couple of things you've learned that you can apply as a lawyer from your own angel investing? I mean, or is it more just that the willingness to accept that this is a risky proposition and the ability to put yourself in the mind of the entrepreneur a little bit better? So I've been angel investing since 2006. And my wife and I have invested in more than 150 companies, predominantly US, Africa, Europe. And when I think about the investments that have gone poorly and the mistakes that I've made, none of the mistakes that were companies where we lost all of our money, none of those matter. The only mistakes that really mattered were the companies where we made 80 times, 50 times, 100 times, 200 times. And we have had those outcomes, our money. And the mistakes were not putting in more. That's it. And so thinking through conviction, how conviction develops, how to recognize the places where you make the same mistake five times, and making sure that from a reputational and relationship basis, you are not making yourself someone that others don't want in their deal, and instead are making yourself someone that others will want to cut into the deal. Those things are important lessons. I think that that is a particularly valuable aspect of the dynamic in the venture market, because unlike the hedge fund world or the public equities world, you're not sitting at a computer pushing buttons and doing math. You are, and I don't mean to at all minimize that world. I just mean that money is fungible. Venture investing the same dollars in at the same valuation is not at all fungible because you're selling the expertise and the credibility that you will bring and the network that you have and the wisdom and judgment and your availability. Understanding how those dynamics play, those are things that I find particularly interesting and then figuring out what's important in a deal. And you know, right now, we're not seeing people spend a lot of time negotiating for the right to obtain liquidity rapidly in illiquid investments. Why? Because the market is awash with secondary opportunities. And there's so much late stage money in the market that we're constantly seeing private tender offers and secondary trades. So five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we spent a lot of time on what happens if I'm stuck in this company. That's much less of an issue now. 
how will that play out in five more years when the people who invested today at valuations that turn out to have been overblown were not prudent in having done so and really want out? That remains to be seen. That's something that we're thinking about and, and having lived through multiple cycles in the 90s and then the dot-com crash and 9-11 in 2008 and a hiccup or two in 2012 and 2014 and a dry bubble in 2015-16. Those are the kinds of things that I hope we can bring to bear that show additional judgment and experience. And I think they also inform some of the ways that I invest and it just, it works back and forth. And then as you've had your career advising startup companies, You've also continued to be very involved in social justice issues. Tell us about that piece of your practice and really your life. I'm not a big fan of compartmentalizing. And there's been much more talk about bringing your whole self to work, for instance. And a lot of that involves identity and who you are. I personally think I spend a lot of my time working and I spend a lot of time with my colleagues and with others with whom I do business. Why shouldn't I, if I'm really fired up about how Neanderthal and inequitable the state of Texas is with respect to reproductive rights, why shouldn't that be part of the conversation? Why shouldn't people be aware that that's how I feel? Similarly, if I think that Donald Trump is a white nationalist and that he is promulgating a white nationalist agenda, why shouldn't people know that I feel that way? And why would I want to sit still and not actually open my mouth and protest when someone is destroying an important part of the fabric of our country, in my view? So I think that line between, you know, hey, let's keep the political out of the office. I think that's kind of a a specious thing that we've set up to be polite. And being polite is fine if we didn't have systemic racism, homophobia, and misogyny, transphobia that precluded the participation by other people who don't look like me and you. But that's not where we are. We're you know, we are the beneficiaries of an intentionally inequitable system. And we went to schools that taught us about what they wanted to teach us about and didn't teach us about how that inequity was still at play and was benefiting us to the detriment of others. And finally, on the social justice side, what would you say is your proudest achievement there? And clearly, this is something you've been involved with and has been deeply important to you your whole life. I don't think of anything in particular as having been an achievement, unfortunately. The way that I think about it is, so my wife and I have been together since we were 18. I met her her first day of college, my first day of my sophomore year of college. We've been together ever since. And we have two kids. And I definitely spend time thinking about if my kids have full knowledge of what I'm doing and when I choose to be quiet and when I choose to use my privilege, because I have massive privilege at this point, will my kids respect me? And will I project that I have acted with integrity here? And I try to hold myself accountable to that. So... I've done a lot of things relative to 
DEI and relative to social justice, I don't know that, you know, that there are massive achievements, but I feel like I've been consistent. And if you look back at things I've written nine years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, I have been consistent. So for instance, publishing in the Wall Street Journal's accelerators page in 2013, a complaint that the venture capital industry was 87% white, 89% male, and that 52% of all VCs in America had at that time degrees from 10 universities, which leads to a really insular, homogenous mind think. And I, re- I published a companion case study at Columbia Business School at the same time on that. I think having said something has value and having built a network with intentionality and having invested with intentionality and having recruited with intentionality. I think those things have value. Being able to look back and say that I supported candidates or joined this organization or joined this board or that we hosted fundraisers for you know dozens of candidates in a given cycle. In other words, it's not one act. It's the consistency of acts that are small and acts that are a little bit larger that I think you have to look back at, not just, you know, on Tuesday in 2007, I did this thing, right? If I had a huge achievement, sure, but I I don't know that I have any huge achievement. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.